So what I want to do tonight is talk about the first four jhanas. The jhanas are described in quite a number of suttas. They're mentioned in half of the long discourses, in over a third of the middle-length discourses. There's a whole Samyutta on the jhanas and the Samyutta Nikaya, and they're mentioned in numerous other places. They show up in the numerical discourses as well. There's eh, some kind of vague references to them in the Kudaka Nikaya also. So clearly they were a very important part of what the Buddha was teaching. But they're all described everywhere pretty much identically. There's just one description of the jhanas. And it's not so much an instructional description as, well, just a way to point out what the factors of the jhanas are, what the jhana experience is like. Uh, the instructions probably were oral. If you became a Buddhist monk and you knew the jhanas, sit, you're set. Yeah, go do your jhanas and here's an insight practice to do. If you didn't know the jhanas, well, go study with Bhante so-and-so. He'll teach you the jhanas. And they were taught as an oral tradition. I had quite a lot of resistance to writing a book on the jhanas because it was like, how, how can anybody learn the jhanas out of a book? But I, eventually people persuaded me and I wrote it. And I've been surprised that people have managed to learn jhanas out of a book. Uh, often what goes on is you get the instructions and then you go try it out and then you have an interview. And the teacher says a little more to the left or a little more to the right or more energy or less energy or more relaxed or more diligence or whatever. And you go do it again and come back and the teacher fine tunes as you go. So we don't have the instructions they gave to the monks. And the pericope, the stock phrases that we have, don't have a lot of detail. But I want to take a look at them tonight and I'll add what my understanding of what their teaching is. So, quite secluded from sense pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, one enters and dwells in the first jhana, which is accompanied by thinking and examining, and is filled with rapture and happiness born of seclusion. One drenches deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with this rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so that there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by this rapture and happiness. Okay, so secluded from sense pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states. I'm again reading from Diganikaya number two, the Samanyapala Sutta, and this is exactly what follows after the hindrances. And the seclusion is secluded from the hindrances. Secluded from sense pleasures, okay, so that's the first hindrance, but also from uh, distractions of sense pleasures. So, yeah, you don't want to be playing music while you're trying to get into the jhanas or anything like that. Secluded from unwholesome states. Yeah, the aversion is an unwholesome state, etc. So the other hindrances come under the unwholesome states and any other unwholesome state that might intrude. So you're secluded from those. One enters and dwells in the first jhana, which is accompanied by, well, the Pali words are vitaka and vichara. Vitaka means thinking, and vichara means something like examining or pondering. 
In later Buddhism, Vitaka and Vichara got redefined to mean initial and sustained attention to the meditation object. There is zero evidence in the suttas that that's how the Buddha understood those words. There is lots of evidence in the suttas that Vitaka means thinking. I mean, multiple suttas. Vichara doesn't occur very often. But when it does, originally it meant wandering around, and that's certainly nothing like sustained attention. But it seems to be examining or turning over in your mind or something like that. Uh, you might be wondering, why? Why did they change the meaning of the words? Well, one of the things that happened over time is that the understanding of exactly what constitutes a jhana kept increasing in concentration. And if you get super concentrated, there's not going to be any vitaka vichara, thinking and examining. So rather than realize, oh, we've come up with states that don't match the jhanas because there's no vitaka vichara, let's just redefine vitaka and vichara to mean something else. And so they redefined it to be initial and sustained attention. <clears throat> this is not to mean that there isn't initial and sustained attention in the first jhana. There is. You have the PT arise and you initially put your attention on it and then you sustain your attention on it. Same with the sukha, which is what is referred to by the rapture and happiness. Uh, PT, most common translation is probably rapture, euphoria, ecstasy, delight. My favorite translation is glee. It's got sort of a uplifting, energetic feel to it, pleasant energy. And sukha is happiness. So first jhana, accompanied by thinking and examining and filled with rapture and happiness, or accompanied by vitakavi and vichara and filled with piti and sukha, born of seclusion, being secluded from the hindrances. One drinks deep, saturates and suffuses one body with this rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by the rapture and happiness. This is an advanced practice. Your first job is to get into the first jhana. Your second job is to get in the second time. Then to get in repeatedly, to sustain it, to sustain it for as long as you want it. And then when you're good at doing that, then you can try and spread it through the rest of your body. And the way to spread it is to put your attention where the PT seems to be the strongest, where the first jhana seems to be centered. And for most people, it's the head area, uh, neck, upper back, maybe upper torso, but the upper part of the body, particularly the head. And then move your attention to an area where it's not so strong. You're not trying to move the PT. You don't know how to do that. You just move your attention. But when you move your attention, the PT will follow along. And then you move it down the other arm and then down the rest of your torso and down one leg and down the other leg. And then your whole body will feel like the PT is suffusing it. But as I say, this is an advanced practice. I didn't even know about this for the first year I was practicing the jhanas. 
Okay, I didn't do that because I didn't know you do, did that. It was only later I learned about it. But I still was getting very concentrated. And uh, yeah, once you get good at them, then you can try and spread it. If you try and spread it before you have a stable jhana, the jhana will break up and yeah, you're back to square one. We have a simile. Suppose a skilled bath attendant or his apprentice were to pour soap flakes into a metal basin, sprinkle them with water, and knead them into a ball, so that the ball of soap flakes would be pervaded by moisture, encompassed by moisture, suffused with moisture inside and out, and yet would not trickle. In the same way, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by this rapture and happiness. So we get a picture of what soap was like at the time of the Buddha. You didn't go to the shop and buy a bar of soap. You had your skilled bath attendant or his apprentice take a metal basin, pour in the right amount of soap flakes, pour in the right amount of water, and then mix the soap flakes and water till you had a homogeneous ball of soap. The frenetic energy of the mixing of the soap flakes and water to get it homogeneous is very much like the PT energy of the first jhana. The first jhana is not a calm, quiet state, right? It, it's got a lot of PT. It's, it's a rather agitated state, just like mixing soap flakes and water would be. So to repeat what Matt said the other day, to get there, Generate access concentration with the breath, with the metta. I think tomorrow he'll talk about using the body scan. Get to access concentration. Stay there for 5 to 10 to 15 minutes. Let the concentration build. Shift your attention to a pleasant sensation and do nothing else. Eventually, the pleasant sensation will increase until it turns into piti and sukha. You need to be patient. You need to be a human doing rather than a human being when you put your attention on the pleasant sensation. It will grow on its own. What you're doing is generating a positive feedback loop of pleasure. And that positive feedback loop will eventually turn into PT and Sukha and you're in the first jhana if you can sustain the PT and Sukha and sustain your attention on it. Okay, so you need the PT, you need the Sukha, you need them to be sticking around, and you need to be able to sustain your attention on the experience. It's usually pretty easy to sustain your attention on the PT Sukha because it's, well, kind of powerful. And then you just hang out there. If the first jhana is really powerful, it can feel like sticking your finger in an electrical socket. And you might not want to stay there very long. If it's mild, you could stay five minutes, maybe even as many as 10 minutes. I would say 10 minutes is the maximum you'd want to stay in the first jhana. Running all that energy eventually becomes counterproductive. The whole idea of the first jhana is to get you to the second jhana. It will increase your level of concentration. And it also gives you what you need to get to the second jhana. So, after you have been in the first jhana long enough, based on how strong it is, and it might be quite short, 
I mean, if it gets to be too much, that's long enough. Take a deep breath. Really let the energy out on the exhale. And let your attention focus on the sukha rather than the piti. In the first jhana, the piti is predominating and the sukha is in the background. When you take that deep breath and let the energy out, the intensity level of the piti will drop down. The sukha becomes more apparent at that point. Put your attention on that feeling of joy, happiness. The PT will remain in the background, and instead of heat or vibration or thrill running through you, it may show up as rocking or maybe some swaying, making some circles, something like that. Your, your body's not quite still, but it doesn't have the electrical feel of the first jhana. The sutta says, further, with the subsiding of vitaka and vichara, thinking and examining, one enters and dwells in the second jhana, which is accompanied by inner tranquility and unification of mind, is without thinking and examining, and is filled with the rapture and happiness born of concentration. One drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with this rapture and happiness born of concentration, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by this rapture and happiness. Okay, so ideally the thinking and examining will get completely quiet when you get to the second jhana. But you're probably not going to get that way in a short retreat like this. Yes, 11 days is a short retreat. You're probably going to need a month or two or even longer to get that depth of concentration. But as you move to the second jhana, there should be bigger gaps between the thoughts. You're not quite commenting on what's going on. In the first jhana, the thoughts aren't about your trip to Majorca. They're more like, oh, wow, this is pretty amazing. This this is is this the jhana? I, I, surely it's got to be, you know, that kind of, that kind of thinking rather than your plans or your worries or anything. But as you get to the second jhana, with the unification of mind focused in on the sukha, then there's not so much of the thinking and examining. It's, yeah, bigger gaps between the thoughts. That it's accompanied by in, inner tranquility. The translation I'm reading is saying internal confidence, but actually the experience is inner tranquility. Basically what happens in the first jhana, you get all this PT, you take the breath, ah, oh, you let it out, and now it's tranquil. So the idea of the first jhana is get the PT, which brings the sukha, which is what you want for the second jhana. Now get some tranquility so you can be there in the second jhana and focus strongly on the sukha, the joy, the happiness. Again, uh, well, it, it says one is without the thinking and examining, and one is filled with rapture and happiness born of concentration. The first jhana, the rapture and happiness, says, is said to be born of seclusion. It arises because you've abandoned the hindrances. You've gotten to access concentration. For the second one, you're taking the concentration from the first jhana and using that for the generate the PT and sukha of the second jhana. 
And again, one drench of steep saturations infuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of concentration, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by this rapture and happiness. The happiness, or joy, depending on how it manifests for you, it can be mild, it could be quite strong, it could be it could be like it's your birthday and somebody gives you a really nice present and you're like, oh, I was one of one of these, this is fantastic, you know, that kind of happiness. But it's not being generated by external circumstances. It's being generated by your concentrated mind. That's the difference. It feels the same as the externally generated happiness. But the capacity to experience that is within you. The person who gave you the nice present didn't put the happiness in your head. They just triggered the neurological pathway for happiness that you already have. Well, it turns out with a concentrated mind, you can trigger that neurological pathway yourself and you wind up with the happiness of the second jhana. Now, because there's some background PT, it's not rock steady. It may come up a little bit and then sort of wane down a bit and come back up again. So it, it sort of comes and goes over the course of, yeah, build up might take two, three, four breaths, come back down two, three, four breaths, something like that. It's just, you know, it's not real steady. It's, it's wavering slightly, but that's fine. Don't worry about that. We have a simile. Suppose there were a deep lake whose waters welled up from below. It would have no inlet for water from the east, west, north, or south, nor would it be refilled from time to time with showers of rain. Yet a current of cool water welling up from within the lake would drench deep, saturate, and suffuse the whole lake, so there would be no part of that entire lake which is not suffused with the cool water. In the same way, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of concentration, so that there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by this rapture and happiness. Okay, so the picture is of a lake far up in the mountains. There's no streams coming in, not even any rain, but at the bottom of the lake, there's a spring of cool water, which completely permeates the lake, completely fills the lake. This is an amazingly accurate simile. I, when I first learned the second John, I, I came and didn't read out this, this simile to us. It was only a year later. And she read it out, and I was so struck by how accurate it was. After the Dharma talk, and she's going back to where she's staying, I go running after her going, it's just like that. It's just like that. It, it really does capture the sense of the second jhana. The first jhana, as I said, is more in the head. The second one seems to be down and a bit lower, maybe at the heart center. And what I found was that the sukha, the happiness, was just welling up out of my heart and completely filling me. So, yeah, a really brilliant, accurate simile. And again, get in, get stable, etc. 
And then when you're good at it, then you can try spreading it. Put your attention wherever it feels the strongest, like the heart center. Move your attention down the arms to the places where it's not so strong. And you can spread it through your body. Again, you're just moving your attention. You're not trying to spread the sukha or anything like that. For the second and higher jhanas, you can stay in them as long as you want, as long as you're capable of. Uh, first jhana, more than 10 minutes is counterproductive. You know, running that much energy, well, you don't get energy for free. It can leave you with insomnia that night, etc. But the higher jhanas, yeah, as much as you want. What you really want to do is learn to stay in them for, let's say, 10 to 15 minutes. You know, really get good at getting in. When you're working with the access concentration, say at the breath, the breath is not all that subtle. Yeah, it's subtle, but it's not that subtle. When you switch to the pleasant sensation, that's definitely more subtle. So that's why you need good concentration, good access concentration to stay with the pleasant sensation. When the first jhana comes, yeah, it's not subtle at all, right? So you don't really need a lot of concentration to sustain it, but to get it to come, yeah, you need the concentration. When you move to the second jhana, it's more subtle than the breath at access concentration, right? So you need good concentration. Luckily, the first jhana gave you more concentration, so you should be able to stay with it. But part of learning the second jhana is being able to stay with it for an extended period. And it's difficult at first because of the subtlety, but you'll get it. Further, with the fading away of rapture, one dwells in equanimity, mindful and clearly comprehending, and experiences happiness with the body. Thus one enters and dwells in the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare, one dwells happily with equanimity and mindfulness. One drinks deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with this happiness free from rapture, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by this happiness. Okay, with the fading away of the piti. By definition, there is no piti in the third jhana. If you've quieted the sukha, but you still got PT left, it doesn't mean you've gotten to the third jhana. All it means is you got to the basement of the second jhana, right? Again, to make the move from second to third, it's often helpful to take a breath, and as you let the energy out, let the happiness or joy, the sukha of the second jhana, get turned down to contentment to wishlessness, to satisfaction. To satisfaction so strong that if Mick Jagger had been practicing the third jhana, he wouldn't be able to sing that song. You are satisfied. Okay? So, it may be helpful to find the contentment, the satisfaction. You're in the second jhana. This is the sukha. You take the breath and as it starts to come down, you remember an incident where you were very satisfied, very contented. Like, I don't know, you just eaten the perfect meal. You didn't overeat and you don't have to wash the dishes, right? And you take that 
quarter second long memory and you pluck the feeling of contentment out of it. So deep breath, Sukha calming down, memory, here's contentment. Yes, right. You lock into the contentment. That may help you with the transition from two to three. Okay. And now your focus is contentment. And then to check to make sure it's the third jhana and not the basement of the second, you check to see is it very still. The PT should now all be gone. Uh, and you're just focused on being contented. Yeah, you're satisfied. You don't want anything. It's a pretty nice place to hang out. It says one dwells happily with equanimity and mindfulness. This is what the noble ones say. The noble ones are the awakened ones. So is the experience of the third jhana somewhat akin to the experience of the awakened ones? I mean, in other words, when you reach Nibbana, does it feel like the third jhana? The third jhana is definitely not Nibbana because, yeah, you come out of it, there's still dukkha out there. But if you do manage to fully awaken, are you hanging out in a third jhana-like state in terms of equanimity, mindfulness, and happiness? I don't know. I suggest that you get fully awakened and check it out for yourself and come back and tell me. That would that would help a lot. Oh, one drink is deep, saturates, and suffuse as before, but now the happiness free from rapture. Again, we have a simile. Suppose in a lotus pond there were blue, white, or red lotuses that have been born in the water, grow in the water, and never rise up above the water, but flourish immersed in the water. From their tips to their roots, they would be drenched deep, saturated, and suffused with water, so that it would be no part of those lotuses not suffused with water. In the same way, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the happiness free from rapture, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by the happiness. So the picture is of a lotus pond, and lotuses coming up out of the mud, but not above the water. They're leading their whole lives underwater. They're filled with water from tips to roots. They're not waving around in the breeze. They're not bobbing up and down on the current. This gives a sense of the isolatedness that's starting to happen. When you're in the third jhana, the outside world seems to be further away. You're in there really deeply. Sounds might uh, seem to be a little muffled. Don't go checking to see if the sounds are muffled, because if you do, yeah, they will not be muffled. It's only in retrospect you might notice that they were muffled while you were in there when you remember what it was like. And yeah, your job is just stay focused on the sense of contentment. It will seem to be lower than where the second jhana was. As the numbers go up, the feeling goes down. There have been a number of times I've meditated for science. And one time when I was doing an fMRI run, they wanted to tell me when to change jhanas. I had headphones on and so forth. And they said, we'll tell you to go up. And I said, no, you can't use up and down. Because you're going to say up thinking numbers, and I'm going to think up thinking direction. 
Uh, you can use previous and next, but you can't use up and down. And so they did that and it, it worked okay. But sometimes I'll have a student come in and they'll tell me, well, I was in the second jhana and I went down. And I don't know whether they meant down to jhana one, numerically down, or down to jhana three, physically down. There's that much of a physical component to the movement from one to two to three and on to four. Okay, so don't be surprised if you're finding the third jhana is lower in your body, maybe at the belly. And again, after you're skilled at it, you could move the sense of contentment through your body by moving your attention from where the contentment seems centered to the other parts, the extremities, etc. As I said, you can stay in this for as long as you want. It would be good to learn to stay in it for 10 to 15 minutes. And then, further... With the abandoning of pleasure and pain, and with the previous passing away of joy and grief, one enters and dwells in the fourth jhana, which is neither pleasant nor painful, and contains mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. One sits suffusing one's body with a pure, bright mind, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by the pure, bright mind. Okay, so the movement to the fourth jhana is a movement away from the pleasure of the third jhana. Being contented is pleasant. I find in the third jhana, I got a little wispy Buddha smile. First jhana, big smile, you can see my teeth. Second jhana, big smile, no teeth. Third jhana, Buddha smile. Fourth jhana, no smile. It's neutral. It's completely neutral. So to make the move from three to four, all I've got to do is put my attention on the smile and relax all the muscles in my face. And when I do, there's a sense of things starting to drop down. And if I can just stay with that dropping feeling, just ride it on down, it will drop for some time and it eventually will settle in a place of quiet stillness. You may find it helpful again to take a deep breath, let the energy out to start the dropping happening. But if it feels like it's physically going down, yeah, go with it. Let it drop down. And your focus now is on quiet stillness. First jhana, the piti. Second jhana, the sukha. <coughs> Third jhana, contentment. Fourth jhana, quiet stillness. Ayakema said that third jhana was like sitting in the mouth of a well. You know, you're just in there a little bit. Fourth jhana, let go and drop down the well. Not climb down, drop down, let go. Uh, you won't sink like you're in a free fall. It'll be drifting down. It's more like drifting to the bottom of the swimming pool. Uh, or third jhana, you're just under the surface of the ocean, and fourth jhana, you drop to the bottom of the ocean. <coughs> Something like that. It's it's a feeling of dropping down. It's a feeling of more isolation. I mean, the bottom of a well is more isolated than just at the entrance to the well. If you're really concentrated, then you might not hear any sounds anymore. 
but don't check to see if you're hearing sounds, because if you do, you will hear sounds. It's only in retrospect you realize that you are hearing sounds. They may become a bit more muffled, even if they're still there. Uh, but yeah, the outside world definitely seems to be further away. And you're just sitting there focused in on quiet stillness. It says, one sits suffusing one's body with a pure, bright mind, so there is no part of one's body not suffused by a pure, bright mind. When I first heard that pure, bright mind thing, it was like, well, pure, I understand that, but why bright? When I'm in the fourth jhana, it's dark. I mean, it's, it's just black. Why is it saying bright? There's a simile. Suppose a man were to be, suffer, be sitting covered from the head down by a white cloth, so there would be no part of his, his entire body not suffused by the white cloth. In the same way, one sits suffusing one's body with a pure, bright mind, so that there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by a pure, bright mind. Well, the picture's pretty clear. It's a guy, he's got a white sheet completely covering him. Boom. Why a white sheet? Why not a black sheet? So I went to Ayakim and I asked her about the pure bright mind and the white of the white sheet. And she asked me to describe the fourth jhana and I did. And she said, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Okay. So I had to put it in the dot, I don't know bucket. I hope all of you have a I don't know bucket. There's a lot that we don't know. More that we don't know than we know. So hopefully everybody's got a big I don't know bucket is happy putting things in it. So I had to put this in the I don't know bucket for 16 years. And then uh, I went on a retreat with Venerable Pawak. Pawak is a jhana master from Southern Burma, and he teaches the jhanas that are described in the Vasudhimaga. What's described in the Vasudhimaga is different from what's described in the suttas, which I've just read to you. They are actually different altered states. It turns out there's the eight jhanas from the suttas and there's different eight jhanas from the Vasudhimaga. Uh, the people who like the Vasudhimaga say there's no difference. But if you read the Vasudhimaga and you read the suttas with an open mind, it's like, yeah, these are different. They're not saying the same thing. So anyhow, I was curious what Powak was teaching. I had read his book. I'd seen him for a day long. So I went on a month-long retreat with him. Now, to get to the Vasudhi Magajanas that Powak is teaching, you have to get a nimitta, a circle of light that's steady right in front of you, like you're looking at a headlight or something like that, the full moon. I had been warned that if I wanted to learn Powak's jhanas, I needed to go on a six-month retreat, and this was a one-month retreat. And so I was like, yeah, I didn't have a lot of expectations. But I still wanted to, you know, work with his practice and see what happened. Uh, I never got the real jhana. I got the preliminary jhana a couple times. I mean, you're supposed to get the preliminary jhana and hold it for an hour or two, and then you get the real jhana. I mean, certainly. I'm supposed to get the... I never got the nimitta. You're supposed to get the preliminary nimitta, and hold that for an hour or two. And then, yeah, once you got that, then you get the real nimitta and you hold that for an hour or two. And then you can get the real jhana, the, the Sudhi Maga jhana. Uh, I got the preliminary nimitta a few times. Once I held it for 20 minutes. 
once. Usually it was about five minutes and it was gone. But it was interesting working with this practice. And basically what happened near the beginning of the retreat, he, he gave us the counting method. The breathe in, breathe out, count in the gap, only go up to eight. And he said, when you can do that for half an hour without getting lost, let me know. And since we had interviews, I think it was every other day, eventually, after not too long, I could do that. So I let him know. And he said, good, drop the counting and continue to follow your breath for the next three or four hours. Three or four hours? Okay. So uh, since I sit in a chair, and I knew I couldn't sit in a chair for three or four hours without it really getting problematic, I decided I would sit in my room. And then I could sit in a chair for somewhere around an hour and 45 minutes to two hours. And when it started getting really uncomfortable, I just slide over into the bed and I lie down and meditate for 20 minutes or so. And then I slide back into the chair to continue for the rest of the three or four hours. And that's when I was getting that preliminary nimitta. But yeah, I never got the, the full nimitta or never got anywhere near his jhanas. Now, one thing that happened after I started doing these long sits is suddenly this huge amount of PT would show up. I mean, it was violent shaking. I was a little worried my head was going to pop off. It was that violent. It'd last maybe 10, 15 seconds and then it'd go away. So next interview, I tell Pao Ock about it. I did not use the word PT deliberately. I just described the shaking and he goes, that is gross PT. Do not let that happen. Okay. So, uh, how do I not let that not happen? Well, since I use the smile to generate the PT, don't smile when I meditate. Keep a nice solemn expression. Okay. And don't think a happy thought. If you think a happy thought, oh boy, you're in trouble. So, yeah, just be very solemn and uh, very neutral. And I could keep the PT away for the three or four hours. Now, I had a little timer, and I'd set it for the three or four hours. And when it went off, it was like, all right, I did Powhawk's thing. Now I'm going to smile. And as soon as I did, the PT would come back, and it would be really, really ridiculously strong. And after, yeah, 10, 15 seconds, it fade out. And I would find myself in the second jhana. Not Powok's second jhana, but the second jhana that I knew from studying with Ayakema. And it was, it was stronger and more stable than I have ever experienced before. Uh, I had a break your face grin on my face. I mean, just big grin. My mind was not going anywhere. I was like, wow, this is cool. So I hung out there for a little bit. It was like, uh, yeah, let, I wonder what the third John is like. So I take a breath, let the energy out, and here comes the PT again. I couldn't get to the third John. Every time I tried, the PT would come back. I'm stuck in the second John. I mean, that's not a bad place to be stuck. But eventually, after about 20 minutes or so, then it just sort of went over the edge and dropped down to contentment. And the PT stopped coming back. It was just very contented and very stable again. Uh, my mind was not going anywhere. So after a little while, I'm like, what's the fourth jhana like? 
wipe the smile off my face, and it would immediately come back. I could not let go of the pleasure of the third jhana. I'm stuck in the third jhana now. And several attempts to try to get to four, they all dumped me back into the third jhana. Oh, well. And then eventually it felt like it just went over the edge and started dropping. And it dropped for a long time. And I found myself in the fourth jhana. A very strong, stable fourth jhana. And furthermore, my visual field was bright white. Not the blackness I'd been seeing, but bright white. It was like I was sitting in an open field on a bright sunny day, completely covered with a white sheet with my eyes open. Oh, yeah, right what it says in the uh, simile. This convinced me that what I had been doing before was obviously not as intense a level of jhana as is being described in the suttas, and that in order to get to what the Buddha and his monks were doing, well, it was going to be more than a 45-minute sitting. It was going to be multiple hours to get there. This makes sense. Uh, the Buddha and his monks grew up in a culture where they didn't have chairs. Everybody sat cross-legged. And so when it comes time to meditate, yeah, they could sit cross-legged for as long as they wanted. They would go on alms round in the morning, and then having eaten the midday meal, probably around 11 o'clock or so, they would go somewhere for the day's abiding, to the forest, to the root of a tree, a heap of straw, charnel ground, wherever, sit down cross-legged and meditate until dark. They weren't doing 45-minute sit, 45-minute walk, right? And so by doing those long sits, they were getting super concentrated. And when they got to the fourth jhana, it was bright white just like I was experiencing. And so I realized that, yeah, okay, these jhanas I have been experiencing can be taken to a much deeper level by staying longer in access concentration. Because basically what Powak was having me do was stay focused on my breathing, which put me into what I call access concentration, not his access concentration. His is with the nimitta. I'm just there with the breathing, like I'm telling you to do, only not for five or ten minutes, but for hours. And I got super concentrated so that when I triggered the jhana, they were super stable, super definitive. And by the time I got to the fourth jhana, it was bright white. So why bother? I mean, it's a lot of work. Sometimes you get there, sometimes you don't. Why bother doing all this? Well, what follows is... When one's mind is thus concentrated, pure and bright, unblemished, free from defects, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, one directs and inclines it to knowing and seeing. One understands thus. This is my body, having material form, composed of the four primary elements, originating from mother and father, built up out of rice and gruel, impermanent, subject to rubbing and pressing to dissolution and dispersion. And this is my consciousness, supported by it and bound up with it. The purpose of doing the jhanas is to generate a mind that is concentrated, pure and bright, unblemished, free from defects, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, 
which you can then direct and incline to knowing and seeing. In other words, doing an insight practice, investigating reality. And what should you investigate? Body and consciousness. Now, consciousness, vijnana here, is being used synonymously with mind. So you should investigate body and mind. Satipatthana, the four establishments of mindfulness. Yeah, uh, first one, that's body, definitely. Second one is Vedna. Oh, that's mental, that's mine. Third one, mind states, that's mine. Fourth one, Dhammas. But most of the Dhammas are mine, except for a little bit of body. Basically, the jhanas are a warm-up exercise for doing your Satipatthana practice and other insight practices, such as the contemplation of the five daily recollections and open awareness practices. And yeah, there's lots of practices, the body scan. All these practices are ways of investigating reality. And if you investigate reality with a jhanically concentrated mind, you have a much better chance of seeing what's going on. Normally, when we look at reality, we're looking at it in terms of, can I eat that or will that eat me? Well, maybe we get a little more sophisticated, but it's all about, is this something I want to get or is this something I need to push away or something I can ignore, right? I is at the center of all of that. I want to get it for me. I want to push it away from me. I'm going to ignore it. I, I, I. It turns out the world does not revolve around me. It may look like that. But if you really want to see what's going on, you need to examine the world from a less egocentric perspective. That will give you a much better chance of seeing what's going on. When you work your way through these four jhanas, you can't have your ego running loose. I think you're all aware that you have to think up or emote up your ego. It's not a little guy sitting behind your eyeballs, looking out, pulling levers, making your arms go up and down. No, it's, it's an illusion. And we have to generate that illusion. Neuroscience knows the parts of the brain that are active when we're actively generating that illusion. Okay, well, getting into the jhanas quiets those parts of the brain. We have evidence of my brain on jhanas where you can see that, yeah, uh, the ego-making parts of the brain are quiet. So when you come out of the jhanas and begin investigating reality, you're looking at the world from a less egocentric perspective, which gives you a much better chance of seeing what's going on. Now, it's also important to come out of the jhana to do your insight practice. When you're in the jhana, about all there is to look at is the jhana. Well, the fact that piti is impermanent is probably not one of the major sources of dukkha in your life, right? It's probably better to look at the rest of the world and see the impermanent nature of the rest of the world so that you stop doing the craving and clinging about or all the other impermanent things in life. Okay, so come out of the jhana and then start your insight practice. I know this contradicts what other teachers or some of the other teachers say. 
Okay, but looking at the sutta here, it says when one's mind is thus concentrated, etc., one directs it and inclines it to knowing and seeing. Right? And when you're in the jhana, you're not going to be able to think about the four primary elements and eating rice and gruel and the fact that your mind depends upon your body. Okay, that, 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 the thinking's supposed to have shut up a long time ago. Right? So the contemplations that you're doing, the investigation of reality is post-jhana. Basically, well, it's like my computer is sitting on a wooden desk. If I wanted to cut that desk in two and I had a butter knife, it's going to be a hard slog, right? I mean, I can make a little dent right away, but to cut a whole wooden desk in two with a butter knife... That's probably easier than getting fully awakened. But you know what would make cutting the desk in two with a butter knife a lot easier? Is if I had a whetstone and I started sharpening up that butter knife, put an edge on it, and I could, I could cut a lot faster. Now, while I'm sharpening, I'm not doing any cutting, but I'll make a lot more progress with a sharp knife. It'll get dull. I have to sharpen it again, right? This is what you're doing with the jhanas. You're sharpening your mind so that you have penetrating insight into the nature of reality. In the Tibetan tradition, there is the bodhisattva of wisdom, Manjushri. He's often depicted holding a sword in his hand that he uses to cut the bonds of ignorance. Jhana practice is just sharpening Manjushri's sword. You haven't wielded it yet. You've still got to do your insight practice to cut the bonds of ignorance. And you certainly don't want to make the mistake of just sharpening, because if that's all you do, eventually you have no sword left. You sharpen it into oblivion without cutting any bonds of ignorance. This is what the jhanas are all about. They're a warm-up exercise for investigating reality, for seeing what's actually happening. It's often translated as knowing and seeing things as they are. But it turns out the word, the world is much more verb than noun. So I want to translate it, knowing and seeing what's actually happening. And the jhanas are a way to enable you to do that.